So what would you do with $10,000? I was reading this week, and an interesting scenario was posed, and it goes like this. Suppose someone gave you $10,000 this morning and said, spend it any way you like as long as you spend it all before you go to bed tonight. That's something, right? Can't put it in the savings account, can't put it in the retirement account, can't stick it in a box in the closet for those last-minute Christmas gifts. Now, you, you can't do that. You've got to spend all of it by the end of the day. Now, most of us would say, <laughs> no problem. I got that covered. Yeah, that's, that's not going to be a hard thing to do. I can, I can find some ways to do that. Yeah, I bet the preacher, he could, he could probably eat $10,000 worth of bacon in one day. So he's good too. Yeah, we, we can find a way to spend the money, right? We know how to spend the money. The flip side of that scenario goes like this. It has been estimated that every single one of us, every single day, have about 10,000 thoughts. So, how are you going to spend your 10,000 today? How are you going to spend your thoughts? More than likely, we are not going to spend our thoughts the same way. Everybody spends their thoughts a little differently. I saw an account of two people who went to the Grand Canyon many years ago and how different their visits to the Grand Canyon were. The two people were an old preacher and a little boy. The old preacher wrote a letter back to his wife, and this is what he said about his trip. Today I've seen the handiwork of God. I've seen God as he put colors on his palette and God as he took his fingers and sculptured a masterpiece. Little boy, he, he wrote home too, wrote his mom a letter, and this is what his letter said. Guess what, Ma? Today I spit a mile. <laughs> Two completely different thoughts of an experience at the Grand Canyon. We're going to have different thoughts from time to time, but how are you going to spend your 10000 today? About 30 years ago, one psychologist estimated that of the 10,000 thoughts that we have every day, about 200 of them are negative. Negative thoughts, things like worrying, things like jealousy or insecurity, cravings for bad things or, or wrong things. And that same psychologist estimated that people who are struggling with depression probably have about 600 negative thoughts a day. That's a lot of negativity. That's, that's a lot of negative thoughts. So is there any help for negative thoughts? Is there any help to, to move us in the direction of seeing the beauty of creation instead of just knowing that we can spit a mile down in a canyon? Is there any help for what we do with our 10,000 thoughts? And does it matter? Does it really matter what we do with our 10,000 thoughts? Does the way we think really make any difference in our life? Can't we just think whatever we want? The Apostle Paul, writing to some of his friends in a place called Philippi, was trying to help them think through some of those same questions. And he's going to help us today as well. Listen to Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. 
Dwell on those things. Think on those things. Spend your 10,000 thoughts towards those things. Now, could each one of those things be a sermon all by itself? Yep. Is your preacher known to spend eight weeks on two verses? Yep. But not this time. Not this time, and here's why. Those, those things, there's, there's eight of them if you separate them out. Those, those eight things, as I read this week, they're not hard to understand. They're, they're not difficult. At, at first glance, we kind of know exactly what these things mean. So even though Paul is going to tell us to dwell on these things, to think about them a lot, we won't dwell on them long in the sermon, but we will dwell on them a little bit. But before we do, I want to get back just for a moment to the 600 negative thoughts. I want to get back to these these moments, these these times of depression. Stephen Altrogi is a husband, a father, a songwriter, a musician, author of several books, and, and he says this about depression. I've often said that depression is like wearing tinted glasses. Everywhere you look, things look dark, bleak black, hopeless, helpless. The waiting room for depression says, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And and then he says this, depression usually causes a person to feel only gloom and despair no matter what they're thinking. Most of us know that, that feeling, right? And so here we have Paul saying, hey, here's some things I need you to dwell on. And then the reality is you put that in the context of depression and you go, no matter what I'm thinking, it is painted too often with gloom and despair. Most of us know that feeling. We know what that feels like. But then he goes on and says this. Reality is outside of my broken brain. It is defined by God's word. It's solid, objective, unchangeable. I try to process my life If I try to process my life or circumstances through the dark lens of depression, I will be terrified. This is unbelievably simple math. God's word, his truth, it's solid, it's timeless, it's unchangeable. It's it's there, we can count on it. And that's why we turn our thoughts there. Because if we turn our thoughts, if we process everything through our fear and our depression, we will be terrified. We will be exhausted. We will be weary. That's hard for us to realize in the moment of depression, right? But the reality is, the reason that we turn to God's truth is because only God is holy, holy, holy. And the reason, even though it's it's hard for us, that, that our moments of depression and despair, that we turn to God's truth is because God is the only one who was and is and is to come. And so our affections and our attention, we we turn to the truth of God because there is no one like him. Now, will turning our affections to the truth of God make those 600 negative thoughts go away? No. It's It's not a magic pill. But it will knock them down a little bit. And if you've been there, To go from 600 depressing negative thoughts to like 500 or 450, it makes a difference. 
knocking them down a little bit has an impact on our heart and our mind and our soul. And God, by His design, uses His truth as the way that we knock them down a little bit. Stephen goes on to say this, God is good, He is faithful, He loves you even though you don't feel it. He can handle your life even when you can't. This is our God. Holy, holy, holy. Was and is and is to come. Therefore, he's the one who actually can handle it. And he is with us even if we can't feel it. Because that's who he is. Stephen goes on to quote a little Spurgeon. Spurgeon, the the faithful Baptist preacher in, in England, struggled with depression his whole life. This is what Spurgeon said. I love this. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is the next best. It's a good picture, right? Just, man, just, just get out. There's something about creation that will help. Stephen bounces off of that. He says this. If you're depressed, embrace the sunshine. Go for a walk or a jog. Sit on your porch and feel the warmth on your face. Drink your coffee and watch the sunrise. It has an impact. But, but let me just go ahead and help you, and Stephen's going to help you too. It won't be easy. He goes on to say, you won't feel like it. <laughs> You'll want to hole up in the darkness of your room or stay in bed. But just 20 minutes in the sun can do wonders. For the darkened brain and the sunken soul. Wonders. It's not an understatement. There's something about God's design of creation that that actually can help us when our soul feels sunk. Now, we we can't all, you know, go, go outside and take a walk together right now. I mean, I guess we could. Actually, it would be kind of fun, right? If, you know, just all of us, like, we left and went down to Krispy Kreme. It would be great. 300 people walking into Krispy Kreme. You can see the faces behind the ladies in the counter. That would be great. And and even people riding down the street, what is going on? You know, walk down there. And and then we get in, and and I turn to the lady at the counter, and I I point to Carol Crawford and said, he's paying for everybody. He's, he's He's got it. Although that'd be fun. We, we aren't going to do it. No. But we, we can just kind of take a walk together in our minds. And God's designed his truth to, to be something that helps us on our walk. He's designed his truth to be found in his book, the Bible. And what does his book say to us? Well, it tells us to dwell on eight valuable things, eight good things. Listen, in a world full of negative politics, in a world full of of extremely violent movies, in a world full of uh, ignorant and immoral TV shows, in in a world full of critical and mean social media posts, thinking on something good sounds pretty good. So Paul gives us some things to think on that are are good. These are valuable things. And so what are they? We're just going to roll through them real quick. First he says, whatever's true. Whatever is, is true. On any given week, the highest grossing movie out in the theaters is something that has been designed completely with computer-generated imagery, CGI. In other words, the plot of the movie or the characters of the movie or the, the activity of the movie 
are, are not real. They've been created. In fact, they're, they're such a creation that they probably would never happen in real life. And millions of people spend two or more hours immersing themselves in a world that is, is not real. And this doesn't include the many more than two hours that many people sit in, in front of fantasy video games and immersing themselves in a world that is not real. Now, does that mean you shouldn't go to movies? No. Does that mean that you shouldn't play video games? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just simply saying that, that it is a simple observation of our culture that we have become obsessed with our time over things that are not real. And, and let me just tender this, because both of those sound like I'm, I'm hitting the younger generation. Let me, let me go for the older generation, too, okay? Uh, our favorite TV shows, they're not real, <laughs> you know? I mean, look, I love me some Matlock, but Matlock ain't real, you know? Stuff never happens like that. For that matter, you know, Mayberry wasn't real, you know? I mean, it's fun. It's good. And, and so all of us, to some degree, we, we live in a bit of a fantasy world. We like to have a little bit of an escape, whatever it may be. So our culture is, has become consumed with hours sometimes of things that are not real. Paul says... <laughs> In doing so, we're kind of starving our minds from truth. And so he says, whatever's true, dwell in those things. Well, how can we do that? How can we free ourselves from, from constant streams of, of fantasy and fiction? How, how can we break free if maybe just for a little while? Well, it all comes back to having a, a strong diet, Paul says, of truth. And where do we get that truth? Well, this is what Jesus said. He was praying for his closest friends, and this is what he prayed to God the Father sanctify them, purify, consecrate, separate them for yourself, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. The world is, is full of fantasy and fiction. It's okay to indulge a little bit, but, but don't dwell on that which is not real. Don't dwell on that which is not true. Dwell on truth. Think on truth. Spend your 10,000 thoughts toward truth. God's word is full of truth. Dwell on the things of God. And just a, a quick commercial. I just heard about it this week. There's, a, there's an app. It's not free, but it's called Dwell. Uh, and the little commercial I heard, I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out. It's a, a great way to engage with God's word uh, all week long. Uh, but it's, a, it's an app called Dwell. Uh, so check it out. I don't, I don't get any, anything for that, by the way. It's just something I heard. <laughs> Next, Paul says, whatever is honorable. Dwell on things that are worthy of respect. Dwell on things that are serious and honorable and dignified. From reality TV shows to uh, collegiate and professional athletes to little league coaches on YouTube to even a, a retiree uh, disgruntled over the coffee not being hot at the biscuit joint. We, we live in a time where more often than not, we are saying to ourselves, our kids, or our grandkids, hey, don't be like that. Don't, don't act like that. Don't, don't talk like she talks. Don't do what he does. Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossae, said this, Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? Because there's plenty of arrogance. There's plenty of, of selfishness here. There's plenty of things that are not 
honorable here. And so Paul says, don't dwell on those things. Dwell on that which is, is higher. Dwell on that which is above. Dwell on God's truth. Because we live in a world of dishonor, it is good for us to fill our minds with that which is honorable, that which is good. And God's truth and God himself is good. We dwell on the honor and the greatness of God. Next, Paul says, whatever's right. Somebody said, how in the world can I think about what's right when everything is so wrong in the world? How can I dwell on what's right when, when every time I, I look in my social media feed or, or watch the news or pick up the paper, whatever I do, I, I hear about all these awful things that are happening. This, this, this crime, there's conflict, there's confrontation, there's political upheaval, there's, there's danger, there's tragedy, there's disaster. How in the world can I think about what's right when there's so much that is wrong? Well, not to oversimplify it, but the reason you, you have to think about what is right is because if you don't, then your heart and your mind and your soul will, will shrivel up and feel just dark and dead if you don't strive for that which is right. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5 or 6. Blessed and happy and satisfied are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed and happy and satisfied is the person that dwells on and is hungry and thirsty for being right with God. That, that's what righteousness means, being, being right with God. Blessed and happy and satisfied is the person that takes God's promises and takes God's truth and says, this is my definition of right. Uh, imagine what would happen in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting habits. What would happen at work and in our practices at the church. Dare we even go so far to say what would happen in our nation's capital if people took the promises and the truth of God and say, this is what is right. That this is what is right. It would change things. Johnny Erickson Tata has been a quadriplegic since a diving accident in 1967. I've shared these next two thoughts with you before, but they, they never lose their punch with me. This is what she said. I don't know all the answers, and I'm not sure if I did that it would help. But I do know the one who has the answers, and knowing him makes all the difference. I'd rather be in this chair knowing him than on my feet without him. If I'm to be held steady in the midst of my suffering, I want to be held not by a doctrine or a cause, but by the most powerful person in the universe. Listen, there's plenty that's wrong in the world, and we can't get away from it. We, we can't run away from it. We can't hide in our houses or hide in our churches from it, and we're not supposed to. But we don't have to dwell on it. We can dwell on, on what is right. We can be satisfied with what is right. And what is perfect and what is right above all things is the goodness and the glory and the power and the majesty and the person of God. Why would we not want to hunger for that which comes from the owner of the universe, the most powerful person 
in the universe. That's, that's right. And so we look to him. Next, Paul says, whatever is pure. Man, we want pure, right? I, I'm telling you, I'm a sucker. Uh, I'm a sucker at any grocery store. You repackage mustard and I'll buy it. You know, I don't care. Whatever it is, I, I'm a sucker for the things out in the aisle. And, you know, you go to like Earth Fair or Whole Foods or, or Fresh Market, but, oh, I am a huge sucker when, oh, it's, it's pure water. You know, <laughs> if you want to watch something funny, go on, on YouTube and watch Jim Gaffigan talk about us drinking bottled water. It's really funny. But, but we, we, we love pure things, right? I mean, we, we love anything that says pure. Oh, it's, it's pure food. It's pure air. It's pure medicine. You know, whatever. We like the idea of something that is pure. But not so much on pure conduct. Not so much on pure character. That's, that's a little different. I was reading something this week about a pastor who was standing, I think, in the basement of his church, and, and there was a picture hanging on the wall, and the, the picture was of the elders and the deacons at their church. And he said what made him smile about that picture was, was the day that the picture was taken. See, one of those deacons in there, that picture was of his wedding day. They, they took a picture of the elders and deacons on his wedding day, and, and what the pastor remembered was that that guy had met his wife at church, and they had dated four years, but what stuck out in his mind the most was on that day, four years later, on their wedding day, it was the first time that they had kissed. And he stood just looking at the picture, and he said, I, just, I was reminded of just what a, a beautiful, pure, wonderful thing that is. It's definitely not the norm, right? I mean, we, we live in a culture where, where young men, they want to live immoral lives, but then they want to go find a pure girl to marry. Or we live in a, a culture where young women, they want to live immoral lives, but, but then they want to put on a, a pure white dress and have a pure church service for their wedding. See, we love the idea of purity, but just for other people, not for us. We, we don't want to pursue purity on our own. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed and happy and satisfied are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed and happy and satisfied are not the ones that pursue immorality, although it feels great in the moment. But then you wake up, and it's not so great the next day, or it's not so great two or three years later into that relationship, or, or whatever it may be. But Jesus said, happy are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. There are plenty of impure things in this world. There are plenty of immoral things in this world. And guess what? You can't hide from them. You know? We can't hide in our houses. We can't hide in the church. We, we can't hide. But we don't have to dwell on them. We can dwell on, on that which is pure. We can dwell on that which is true of God. Because what is true of God is pure. Because he is holy, holy, holy. He is other, other, other. We are not, and he is. So we dwell on him because he is pure. Next, Paul says, whatever is lovely. Dwell on things that are pleasing and attractive, things that inspire admiration. You know when something really gets lovely is when it's set down in the middle of something that's ugly, right? I mean, you, you really see something beautiful when you see it in the middle of something that's not. 
You really see in the, in the middle of tragedy sometimes, in the middle of, of heartache, when you see that man, that woman, that young boy, that, that girl, when their eyes are lifted to Jesus, when their mouth speaks of Jesus, when we know that their hope and their confidence is in Jesus, all that is ugly, all that is terrible, all that is tragic around that, all of a sudden there's this moment of beauty. There's this lovely person in the middle of the storm saying, for this I have Jesus. From the pain and agony and horror of the cross, after being brutally persecuted and and tortured long before he was nailed to the cross, and in this moment of agony and pain, we, we hear these words from Jesus. Father, Forgive them. In the middle of of his pain, in the midst of unspeakable torment, here is this lovely voice speaking lovely words, not just to the people around the cross, but to you. That forgiveness can be yours. In the midst of whatever sin has dominated your life, in the midst of of whatever despair or difficulty, the forgiveness and the love and the mercy of Jesus, it is attractive. It is pleasing. It is worthy of admiration. Listen, I could figure out a way to scroll through social media on the screen for you to watch for like three seconds and we'll find plenty of things on anything that we look at that's unpleasant. There's unpleasant links and there's unpleasant tirades. I appreciate the words of one of my friends and local pastors last night who said uh, every college football fan should never get on Facebook after their game. (laughs) Win or lose. He's probably wise and right in saying so. The world is full of unattractive, unpleasing, horrible things. And we can't run away from them. We can't hide from them. But we don't have to dwell on them. We, we can dwell on that which is lovely. And the truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ, it is pleasing and attractive and lovely. It never loses its shine. Next, Paul says, whatever is of good repute, That means dwell on something that's kind or appealing. William Cooper wrote some of our most well-loved hymns, and in his moments when he was dying, the, the woman who took care of him was trying to offer him some encouragement and some refreshment. And this is what he said back to her. What can it signify? In other words, what good is it? He was saved, he was redeemed, but, but as he was drawing his last breath, he had nothing but despair to speak of. So that would be something that doesn't feel like good repute. It's true, it's a very true part of, of his life. But, but I choose to not dwell on that part, I choose to dwell on a different thing that he said. Something that is of good repute, that's, that's kind and appealing. It goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose them. In his last breath, he he had despair, but not always. 
There was that moment when, when Cooper said, you know what, if I put myself under the flow of the blood of Jesus, I lose the guiltiness of my sin. No matter what anyone says about me or against me, I cannot be touched because my sins have been forgiven by Jesus. We, we lose all our guilty stains. That is of good repute. That is kind. That is appealing. So we dwell on that. There are plenty of offensive, discouraging, and despairing things in this world, but, but we don't have to dwell on it. We can dwell on that which is good and kind and appealing. And then two more. I'm, I'm kind of putting them together in verse 8. Paul says, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So what does that look like in real life? Let me just throw out some questions. Think about your normal habits. All right, don't, don't try to paint yourself too, too great of a picture here. Like normally, uh, your normal routine of life. Think about these questions. When you see somebody, do you think one of these two things? What do I not like about that person? Or what is he or she not doing that I think they should be doing? Are, are those your natural first thought when you're, you know, sitting at the booth waiting for the waitress to come over or whatever it may be? Or is your first thought, what is excellent and worthy of affirming in that person? What, what can I affirm about this person? Your answer to that question matters because it, it determines whether or not you're being excellent and praiseworthy in your thoughts, whether you're dwelling on that which is good. All right, let's, let's talk about it in a, in a church setting. All right, a couple more questions. First thoughts that run through your mind are, what's wrong with that congregation? And what do I not like about that church? Or is it, what is excellent and worthy of affirming about that church? What, what can I say about that church that's affirming? And let's just throw this out in, in the world of politics. Can you imagine what would happen? Listen, I, I am, I'm a big fan of our former uh, politician in our, our state, Trey Gowdy. And the reason why is because consistently he affirms people he disagrees with. And he does it publicly. And he does it wisely. And he does it lovingly. And he does it consistently. What would change? And, and by the way, if you've ever read the book that he and Tim Scott wrote, if not, I encourage you to read it. I've been purchasing it for people because it, it had such an impact on me. But that's one of the reasons he's not in politics anymore. <laughs> Because it, it felt like a little bit of a lost cause, I think, to him to do the right thing. And so he's going to do the right thing in a lot of other ways, and he is. But, but what would change in our world? What would change in your marriage? What would change in your relationship with your kids if, if you would just look for, for something excellent and praiseworthy to affirm first? I'm at the Waffle House the other night, all right? I'm the only person in there for like two hours. I'm over in the corner. I'm studying. Nobody comes in. And so the cook, it's just one cook and one waitress, and, and the cook was so discouraged. He's like, ah, oh, no, he's in here. This place has been so dead for so long. Now, I'm loving it. You know, I got the place to myself. It's quiet. I'm getting a lot done. And, and the waitress, she said back to him, she said, you know what? We should just appreciate and enjoy the peace and quiet. And I was like, you go, girl. That's good. I like that. That's nice. And so then I got up and, and I went to the bathroom. And when I came back, I was still the only person in the restaurant. And I said to both of them, I don't know which one of you did it, but that is the cleanest bathroom I've ever been in in my life in a restaurant. 
ever. And, and this was true. It was amazing, you know. And nothing against them, but normally you wouldn't say that about a Waffle House bathroom, okay? And, and so I just, man, it was amazing. And you know what happened to both of them? They looked at me like I was an alien, you know. It was just like, uh, thanks, you know. And I was like, really, y'all, y'all just did a great job. I mean, they, they just look amazing. She's like, thank. Their, their whole demeanor changed. Now, let me just say this. I was, I was great with the folks at Waffle House. I'm not always great with my wife and kids like that, you know. I mean, I'm sinful, and I'm weak, and I do the wrong thing. But, but can you imagine what would happen if, if the habit of our lives as Christians is to say, what is excellent and praiseworthy and affirming in this person, especially if I disagree with them? How can I affirm them? What would change in our world if we would follow such a simple truth? from the Bible. Who are you a fan of? Who do you praise? Who are your heroes? Who do you tell your kids and your grandkids to be heroes? Are your heroes Christians, men and women, who are excellent and praiseworthy? I mean, do do you make it a habit to affirm to your kids and your grandkids and yourself people who are truly following Christ? Are those the ones that you direct them toward? How would we know whether we're directing somebody towards someone who is excellent and praiseworthy in their walk with Christ, well, it depends on what they're dwelling on. And how do you know what they're dwelling on? Well, you're going to see it in their lives. And what's the, one of the most important things that a Christian can dwell on? Peter tells us, First Peter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are part of the kingdom of God. You are a child of God. That's something to dwell on. And why should we do that? Peter tells us. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The most excellent and praiseworthy thing that we can ever dwell on is the reality that through Jesus Christ we have been taken out of the darkness of sin and we have been transferred by Jesus into the marvelous light of eternal life. That's the greatest thing that you could ever dwell on. Dwelling on what Jesus has done for us. When Paul's writing here, dwell on these things, the the tense of the verb is imperative. Meaning that, that this is a present imperative command from Paul to dwell on these things. Now what gives Paul the right to command us to do anything? Listen to verse nine. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What was happening to Paul as as he's sitting in in the middle of writing this letter? Well, he was a prisoner. He He was not on his own doing his own thing. Almost all the normal comforts of life have been taken away from him. I love how Jeff Thomas described this. He has been in the spotlight in times of freedom when he was their pastor, but now he is pinned down under the scrutiny of guards and visitors in a prison cell. He is always there, never out for a moment. He is always under observation. And what have they been learning and hearing and seeing from his example? That the God of peace is still with him in jail, as much as in a pulpit or a prayer meeting. And he says this, Paul lived consistently as a God-fearing man, so you live like this too, he is saying. In other words, 
This text is a description of the normative Christian ethic. It is all wonderfully positive. Let me reword that. The normal Christian life should be marked with a wonderful, positive excellence. Let me repeat that. The normal Christian life should be marked with a wonderful, positive excellence. Now, is that perfect, wonderful, positive excellence? Uh-uh. Not at all. We're not going to be there. But it should be there in some way, some shape, some form. The power of the gospel, the power that we have lost, all the guilt of our sin, that should drive us to a wonderful, positive excellence in how we think and how we act and how we live and in what we do. It's not easy, but, but the gospel helps. And here's the best fuel that we have for doing that. See, the the best fuel that we have for doing that is because as Christians, we have the one thing, the one reality that above all other realities is true, is honorable, is right, is pure, is lovely, is of good repute, is excellent and worthy of praise. What is that one thing? that, That one thing that we have is Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. For that, I have Jesus. For all things, I have Jesus. Bar another few, th- few lines from Stephen Altrogi. Ultimately, your hope and depression hinges on Jesus. He's holding on to you even when it feels like you're free falling. Somebody's felt that way this week. More than likely, more than one of us. He's holding on to you even when it feels like you're, you're free-falling. And he goes on. You may be in the dark, but your shepherd is walking right beside you. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed by grief. Remember in the garden, Jesus was so overwhelmed with grief that in his prayers he was sweating blood. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed by grief and swallowed up by bleakness. And then he says this. Your grip on life may falter, but his grip on you won't. That is true. That is honorable. That is right that is pure, that is lovely, that is of good repute, that is excellent, that is worthy of praise. Jesus will not lose his grip on you. Dwell on that. Dwell on that. May the Lord give us grace to feel his grip.